Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. Oftentimes, you see in the headlines stories about the NCAA and the enforcement of rules. Uh, you oftentimes see folks coming up with opinions that are either positive in terms of what the NCAA does and, not surprisingly, negative about the role that the NCAA plays in enforcement procedures. And we thought it would be helpful uh, to give you a, a pretty strong dose of facts about how it all works out. And that gives you then the opportunity to reach your own conclusions, but conclusions based upon facts, which is not a bad idea. Um, so in that regard, we're delighted to have our friend John Duncan back with us, NCAA Vice President of Enforcement. Uh, John, you and I have, have talked before a little bit, and we tried to sort of provide a, a roadmap for folks who are interested in how a, a, an enforcement case gets started at the NCAA. But there's some things we didn't get a chance to talk to, and I thought it would be helpful, especially since the last time you and I talked, there have been some high-profile cases. And, and one of the things that, that I've learned from my own involvement in the NCAA, um, especially my service on, on the uh, Division I Committee on Infractions, is that people don't truly understand it. So that being said, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Good to see you. Always good to have you here with us. Let, let's start off um, with with a, a kind of an overview first, if you will, of of, of your department, and then I'm gonna I want to get to some specifics about how things happen. But generally, just give me a sense of of when I say that you're the vice president of enforcement. What does that mean? Yeah, our charge is to satisfy the mission legislated for us uh, by the members in Article 19 in the manual, and that is to provide uh, a fair opportunity to win, to provide fair procedures for the detection, the development, the investigation, and ultimately the adjudication of potential violations. And so we are one, the enforcement department is one small part of a much broader infractions process, bookended literally on, on either end by decisions of the membership on the front end. The membership drafts the rules. On the back end, the membership fashions the penalties. The enforcement department is that group in the middle that investigates and brings to the attention of the Committee on Infractions potential rules violations. Let me, let me come back to that for a second because I think that's important also when you talk about the bookends. So when you say that the membership drafts and, and, and crafts, if you will, the rules, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean that uh, a lot of people believe that those rules, the, the, the rules by which recruiting is governed and academic um, uh, eligibility, a lot of people believe that those rules are drafted here in Indianapolis by the national office or more specifically by the enforcement department. And they're not. They are, they are de debated and drafted and ultimately um, adopted by the member colleges and universities that make up the NCAA. They then hand those rules to the enforcement department and say, enforce these. Mm. I, I've often compared this, especially during the time that I was sitting on the Division I Committee on Infractions, to the notion of, of a, a, a justice system. But I, I do want to distinguish what the NCAA does here. Um, because people will often look at this and say, oh, it's, it's some form of justice system, and I guess the NCAA should be looked at as a prosecutor, right? What's your reaction to that characterization of, of you and your department as the prosecutor? Yeah, in some ways it's apt, in other ways it's not. Obviously, when you're talking about prosecuting and you've got experience as a prosecutor, the, the consequences are to take away someone's liberty. Mm -hmm. And that is not ever the case with the NCAA infractions process. Um, 
Having said that, there, there is a, a, an analogy that one could draw between what we do and what a prosecutor does. A prosecutor looks at the facts, applies the facts as he or she understands them to the, to the law, and brings charges for someone else to decide. And that's not unlike what we do. We, so a, a parallel there in the sense that, as, and I'll go back to my days as a prosecutor, I didn't make up the rules or the laws. I had them in front of me, statutes, similar to what you're saying here, that the, the membership gives you the, the rules and regulations for you to follow. You're not creating them. That's right. right. Uh, you're giving them, and, they, and you do the investigation and say, what do the facts say, and how do they fit into this? That's right. And if the facts suggest that a violation may have occurred, our legislated obligation is to bring those facts to the attention of the membership through the Committee on Infractions. And let that group ultimately decide whether a violation occurred or not. Or if the facts suggest that, um, that something happened or, and it wasn't a violation or that the facts that were originally reported to us are not accurate, then we close down the case and we pick up another one. Next pitch. No problem. Yeah. Tell me how it is, the, the different ways that a, 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 a possible case, let's call it that way, Again, understand that, as you explained, your, your mission is to make sure there's a level playing field, that everybody's playing by the same rules. So how is it that a possible, let's call it a possible violation, maybe that's a better way to do it. How, uh, what are the different ways that that can show up on your desk, if you would? Lots of ways. We have a network of sources, um, individuals in and around the membership who provide information to us. Um, but the most common way, Jack, is for institutions to do what they are supposed to do, which is to detect on their own uh, potential violations, self-report those to us, and then work collaboratively together to investigate them. We also get calls from uh, tipsters or folks with information from the public. We um, sometimes read articles from your colleagues in the media and, um, and have to look at whether there could be a potential violation there. But the vast majority of, of information that comes in is either developed by our network of, of sources through contacts that we have between our office and, and those in the membership, or colleges and universities calling us self-reporting violations. Let me talk about that, because I think people might be surprised about that. Uh, again, here's where the parallels and the breakdowns in terms of the, what the NCA does and the enforcement group does and a prosecutor's office out in the real world. Here's where that breaks down. Because you know, I never remember as a prosecutor my getting a phone call from somebody who was a potential defendant saying, oh, by the way, you might want to take a real hard look at my, my security fraud actions right. here. All right. So people might be surprised to hear you say that a significant portion of your cases are the institutions themselves. Talk a little bit more about that and explain that, that relationship and why people shouldn't be surprised by that. Yeah, that's one of the many breakdowns. Another one happens at the end. When yeah, you're and I'll, I'll, I'll get okay. to that with you also. Yeah, well, it is, put simply, Jack, it is a condition and obligation of membership for colleges and universities to uh, be looking for potential violations. And if they find those, to affirmatively reach out to the NCAA, to us specifically, and report those. Um, and actually failure to do that is a separate violation. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of, of member institutions, Jack, take that obligation very seriously. And I'm always pleased when they do and proud of institutions that make that difficult call. And when I get the chance, I reaffirm to the president, to the chancellor, to leaders, to their council, that it may seem odd to make that call to me, but it's the right thing to do. And there is 
Um, there are incentives built into the rule book, and the Committee on Infractions will absolutely take that into account when it comes time to fashion penalties. Right. So basically they're doing the right thing, but there'll also be a benefit in it for them for doing the right thing down the road? Is that a f- fair way to characterize it? It is. It is a standalone obligation, but there is an incentive built into the process as well. Let me, let me go back to our parallels that we're doing here and talk about another one where they break down. And that is when you first get information across your desk. And let's say this is information that's coming from another source, not the institution itself. If you're a prosecutor, right, basically you're going to investigate and rarely are you going to let the target of your investigation know that you're investigating. Might be some instances, but rarely. How about in, in your situation here? Do you reach out to the institution right away to talk with them? Most times we do. My preference, Jack, is for the institution to know as much as possible as early as possible and to work cooperatively together with the institution and their counsel. Um, There are instances, though, where for one reason or another we don't share information immediately. Sometimes we're concerned about compromising the integrity of the investigation, and that's not doubting the integrity of the institution, but the more individuals involved. Exactly. Um, The other thing is that a call from us. Um, is unwelcomed normally on campus. And what we don't do for the benefit of the school is every time we hear a potential violation about a school to call that athletics director and start a five-alarm fire for what may be a false positive or information that's not accurate. And so we withhold it sometimes, Jack, not to, to, to keep the school in the dark, but to prevent um, an unnecessary crisis on campus. And we have no interest in starting that. So once the process gets started, uh, again, give us a little bit of, of a sense of uh, walk us through the stages of an investigation. Yeah, very briefly, when information comes in, we've got a, a sophisticated intake process. We get lots of information every year, and we have to look at it early on and decide what to do with it, whether it warrants further action or whether it doesn't. We've talked about that before. If it does, in your scenario, um, it doesn't automatically mean that there will, there will necessarily be an infractions case presented to the Committee on Infractions. In fact, there are many paths that that piece of information could take. Maybe we substantiate the violation and provide notice and take it to the Committee on Infractions. Maybe we don't, um, and we close it down, as I said. Or maybe it's not processed as a Level 1 or Level 2 or major case, but we can process it as a Level 3 case. Um, a more minor case, a secondary case. And if there's any way to do that, Jack, we do. Um, other times we find that there, that there may not be institutional involvement, that, that you've got a student athlete who may have compromised his or her eligibility, but it's not something for which the institution is responsible and there's another path um, for that. So there's multiple paths that a piece of information can take. But assuming that there is reason to believe that the facts are accurate, that they suggested by law violation, we, that is major or could be level one or level two, we will assign a team to work together with the institution or their counsel and try and find out what happened. There is no predetermined narrative. There is no winning or losing or cases. We only want to know what happened and then decide in the first instance whether we believe a violation occurred or not. Um, in the vast majority of cases, we agree with the institution ultimately on what the facts are what the, what the potential violations are, and normally what the level of those violations are. But ultimately, um, those decisions are reserved to the Committee on Infractions. 
Let me talk about that uh, because, again, this is something where the, the folks on the outside might not understand what that is. The, the division one, let's talk about the Division I Committee on Infractions. And, and I would suspect that some of them would think, well, just it's an extension of your office. Maybe it's, maybe it's staffed by people from your office. Right, what, is, what is it actually? Who composes it and how do they do their job? Yeah, so let's put it in the plural, they. So there is a Committee on Infractions for Division One, which is made up of Division One peers, separate Committee on Infractions entirely for Division Two, and a, and a separate one for Division Three as well. And each is made up of representatives of member colleges and universities from that division. So you've got presidents, you've got athletics directors, you've got compliance professionals, former coaches, senior women administrators, um, there are some public members as well, little known fact. But yeah, that's, the, that's fairly recent, right, the inclusion of public members. I, I mean, I went on as a public member. I'm trying to remember how many, maybe six years ago, something like that. And I think it was one of the earlier um, public members going on. Um, where did public members come from and what's the idea behind that? The idea is to uh, – well, the idea came from – where did it come from? came from the membership, like all the other rules that, that we apply and the process that we use. Those were member – uh, concepts that were adopted by the membership and memorialized in the manual. That's where it came from. The idea was to have some independent thought, some some fresh set of eyes, some folks from outside the membership to um, hear these cases to fa- to help the difficult decision of fashioning penalties. Um, and they have proven to be great contributors over the over the years. Are we seeing a, a movement towards an, an expansion, if you would, bringing in more? Um, members of the public to sit on these committees? Well, post-basketball commission from last year, obviously there is now a path where cases are heard entirely by independent public members, where there's no representatives from the membership at all. We can talk about that, but that's the, the independent resolution panel that will be effective later this year. But on the Committee on Infractions, the traditional path for a traditional case that goes to the Committee on Infractions there are a small handful of, of independent members on the Committee on Infractions, um, but also on the uh, the Infractions Appeals Committee. So remember, there is an appellate layer above and beyond the Committee on Infractions, which also has public independent um, uh, participation. Talk a little bit about the, this, the new independent panel that you mentioned a moment ago. What's, what's their function going to be, and how will they work in comparison to the, the committees that have been in place? Yeah, so the the Commission on College Basketball released its report now about one year ago, and and among other proposals, recommendations they made were to have certain select complex cases um, referred to a process outside the traditional Committee on Infractions process and adjudicated by an independent body. the, the Commission on College Basketball did not define what makes a case complex. The members have done that in the, in the months and in the, in the year that have followed. But moving forward, there could be cases, for whatever reason, and in, in the, the factors are legislated in, in Article 19, that, that, that the institution or the enforcement staff or the Committee on Infractions could say, look, this is not a great fit in the traditional Committee on Infractions process. Let's send this over to a different path, have it adjudicated by uh, independent uh, public members uh, separate from the Committee on Infractions with no appeal. And that process is in construction now. We're selecting those members now, the, the investigators, the advocates, also the adjudicators. 
And that will be live and ready to go when that when that legislation becomes effective August 1st. Can you give us a, an idea of what type, not a specific case, obviously, but generally speaking, what kind of case might work its way to that body? There are several, and those factors are legislated. Um, some of them include those, those difficult cases where there is an intersection between difficult public policy questions and NCAA authority, NCAA legislation, NCAA jurisdiction, for example. Others could be those where there are multiple, multiple parties, and it gets just complicated for volunteer members of the Committee on Infractions to handle a case of that size and complexity. Another example may be a record that is tens of thousands of pages long, and sometimes these cases have records that are voluminous. They can be fairly extensive. Can I can be. attest to that. Indeed. There are also cases, um, a small minority, Jack, but there are some cases where, where, the, where the parties get uh, in conflict for one reason or another. Reasonable minds can differ, and those become contentious. Again, that's the very small minority. Most do not go that way. But in those instances, it may make better sense to have an independent adjudicative body that's prepared to handle that kind of conflict rather than the cooperative approach preferred by the Committee on Infractions. So let's get then to, to a, a, the hearing and the decision process, if you will. Is, is your group, your, your, your folks, your staff, once the, the Committee on Infractions starts to consider all of this after the presentation has been made, and as you said, it can be done by both sides submitting and agreeing, here are the facts, now decide what's going to go on. It can be a, a hearing that takes place. One of the one of the ones I was involved in was a couple days worth of of testimony and witnesses and and legal counsel being there. Again, I must say the ones that I was at was they were um, they were I want to say maybe collegial. I'm, I'm not. I think that's a pretty good word for it. I mean, there were it was advocacy. Um, but it was advocacy where people said, we're all under the same umbrella here, looking for the same thing. We might, as you said, might be reasonable minds differing on it. But I never got involved in anything where there was the kind of conflict that I've seen in courtrooms as a traveler. So, so once it gets into the hands, if you will, of the committee, are you folks even there in the room when they're making their determination? What's your role? No, I have never. One of us has been in that room, and it's not me, Jack. Yeah. It's only been you. Yeah. After the hearing, uh, the enforcement staff presents the information. Uh, everybody has an opportunity to respond through that in person, through counsel, through whatever means they like. Opening statements, presentation of information, closing arguments. Um, and at that point, the Committee on Infractions thanks everyone for their time and excuses all the parties. And then retires, including you folks, including us, and retires privately and deliberates. And I have never been in that room. I will never be in that room. I don't have the foggiest idea what happens there, except that I understand that representatives from the membership, together with some public voices, wrestle with whether the information suggests that a violation occurred, and if so, they begin the difficult task of fashioning penalties. And I don't envy that, but I've never been there, Jack. And I will tell you again, from my experience. Um, and people might disagree with the results, and I understand that. You know, I, I made my living in courtrooms for a long time and chronicling what goes as a journalist goes on in courtrooms. And I understand that, that generally because you've had a hearing doesn't mean that all of a sudden everybody agrees on things. Uh, my belief has always been if everybody respects the process, you can accept a decision even, even if you don't agree with it. So the, the decision is reached, and, and I've talk, you and I have talked about this before. I've been in rooms where there's some real anguish 
going on amongst the members, saying, did this happen? Did it happen in this fashion? What should we be doing about it? You know, what's the appropriate resolution here? But I want to come back a moment to something you said in the very beginning, and that is, if they determine, okay, here are the facts, and this is, these are the facts we're going to accept here, where do the penalties come from? Do they get the ability in the committee to say, well, here's what we think would be good, a good resolution to this? What's that standard? Where does that standard come from? Yeah, one of the, one of the best parts of this job is getting that question from a president. After a hearing, mm-hmm. I walk across the hearing room to the president, shake his or her hand, and, um, and sometimes I get that question. And I point up to the Committee on Infractions and say, now they're going to go decide that. And those, those representatives of the Committee on Infractions look a lot more like you than they do me. It's mm-hmm. your peers, your colleagues, not mine. And those uh, members of the Committee on Infractions do not just fashion penalties out of whole cloth. They don't just stick a finger in the air, take a whiff, and, and make something up. The, there are um, pretty specific parameters legislated in Article 19. In fact, there's a, a chart, a penalty guideline, figure 19-1 for any audience members who are listening and have access to the manual that's at the back of Article 19. And it lists um, levels and, and classifications of violations and ranges of penalties that the Committee on Infractions is, is bound to select from. And the Committee on Infractions, in my experience, has never departed from those guidelines. They pick penalties within the range that are informed by the, the level of the underlying violation and then application of aggravating and mitigating factors, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. But the authority and the guideline come from um, legislated uh, guidance in the manual from the colleges and universities. Why have the, the institutions, colleges and universities, said we're going to create the, 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 the possible penalties here? We're going to create the matrix, if you will, that shows for this type of offense, here's your range of penalties, rather than leaving it um, to the decisions of the, the committee members. The main driver for that decision, Jack, was predictability to help inform the so-called risk-reward analysis and so and to provide notice to member institutions, look, if these types of violations happen on your campus or in your athletics programs, these are the ranges of penalties that you can expect. No surprises. Mm-hmm. It's all legislated right there. And so there is the predictability balanced against the flexibility to, to move upward as appropriate if there are aggravating factors or downward as appropriate if there are mitigating factors. So it's an, it's an effort by the membership to balance predictability with flexibility and leave that decision to the sound discretion of, of their peers on the Division I Committee on Infractions or same for Divisions two and three. What kind of, of, of instances might enter into categories of aggravating factors or mitigating factors? What kind of things would you look to? Again, those are listed in in the manual, um, Bylaw 19.9. Aggravating factors are generally those behaviors that the the members have have opted to disincentivize, not cooperating in an investigation. Behaviors that that compromise a student-athlete's eligibility. Behaviors by those who are in positions of authority. lying to the enforcement staff or the Committee on Infractions. Those are behaviors that can, that so-called aggravating factors that can make a penalty worse. The equal and opposite are the mitigating factors. That is, those behaviors before and after uh, commission of a violation that, that should reflect penalties that are less severe. Things like extraordinary or exemplary cooperation 
in an investigation or detecting to our conversation uh, to our to our remarks a few minutes ago about self-detection and self-disclosure uh, promptly to the um, to the NCAA or history of of, of self-reporting level three or secondary violations. Those are behaviors that the that the members decided. Look, let's let's reward that. Let's let's codify that you get credit for those when it comes time to fashion a penalty. Now, those behaviors don't cure the underlying violation or or inform the level of the underlying violation, but they're absolutely factors that the Committee on Infraction can and should and does take into account when fashioning penalties. Last question for you, and this this is goes back to what we've talked about in terms of parallels breaking down and, and why, in, in your view, it, it's not appropriate to, to call you, be, you as a, a prosecutor going on here. We talked about the very beginning where you reach out in most instances to the institutions and engage in conversation, cooperation with them. What about at the end of this? So the hearing takes place. Um, it's in the hands of the, the Committee on Infractions. Determinations are made. What sort of interaction do you continue to have with the institutions at the, at the end of this? Yeah, so a couple ways to answer that, Jack. One is the actual penalties, which we're talking a little bit about. And I know some believe that we celebrate uh, harsh penalties and we grieve lighter penalties. It's not the case. We're not emotionally invested in the outcomes of specific cases. Um, we care about outcomes of cases um, to the extent that we're trying to protect the broader association and the broader game. And we want to make sure that penalties are appropriately uh, uh, fashioned and severe enough to deter behaviors, but um, not so severe that they deter detection and, and reporting of violations. But we also, so that's a, a note on the penalty, but we also have an ongoing relationship with the institutions. We are doing business with representatives from the membership on policy and governance and legislative issues and difficult challenges facing intercollegiate athletics. And so when you're a prosecutor, Jack, my guess is you never went to jail after having convicted an individual and, and looked through the bars and asked, you know, that now convicted defendant how he or she felt about your performance. I and, don't think I ever did that. Yeah, <laughs> and, there, and there was no ongoing relationship. And so uh, we, we work hard through the infractions process, through the investigation, the charging, the hearing, and even communications after the penalties have been fashioned and through the appeal if necessary to maintain a professional, um, trusting, working relationship with that institution because we're going to be doing business with them again, hopefully not inside the infractions process, but certainly outside of it. Yeah. And, and again, I think that to me, when I learned of that, it was, was one of the real significant instances that I think underscores what you say that the, the function is. You're working, you don't work against the institutions, you work with the institutions under the, the umbrella of the rules that they've created here and the fact that you reach out afterwards and say, all right, let's talk about this. I think that distinguishes it and maybe, as I said, underscores that relationship. Yeah, we, we have a f two formal ways to reach out to an institution beyond just practically doing business with those schools. We have a survey instrument that we tell the schools about at the beginning of an investigation. Look, at the end of this, we're going to ask you how we did to help keep ourselves accountable. And we forward that to representatives from the, from the institution at the close of the case. And the, and the, and the data coming back from those uh, survey instruments is really helpful. It's interesting. I also plan a call with the president or chancellor just one-on-one -on -one, mm -hmm. uh, after the, the, the entire matter is exhausted. And those have proven to be uh, enlightening, insightful, 
friendly, um, welcomed conversations, and our staff has learned a lot from the input from presidents who are very engaged, by the way, and welcome that call. And those have been uh, those have been really helpful in fashioning um, strategies moving forward. They're not designed to provide relief in that that specific case, but they absolutely inform on our on our approach, our philosophy, our strategies um, moving forward. Things we can do better. Um, and maybe continue to do things that are working well. well. John, it's a process that's not not well understood, and and I think any time you can shine a light on it and help people better understand it, as I said, it doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to agree with the decisions, but at least they'll understand the process uh, that you follow here. So um, it's always good to talk with you and help us to understand all this. You be well. Thanks, Jack. Take care. Again, our thanks to John Duncan, the NCAA Vice President of Enforcement. That does it for this episode of the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. We hope you'll join us again real soon. I'm Jack Ford. Take care. 